One of the Asian grandfathers of this um, meditative tradition is a monk from Burma in the middle of the last century who was the teacher of Anagarika Manindra, who then returned to India and was the teacher of Joseph Goldstein and Sharon. And he was also the teacher of Saito Upandita, with whom all of we have practiced. And the distinguishing characteristics of his teaching is that he understood and developed a style of teaching that was suitable for lay people like ourselves, householders, people who have busy lives with families and jobs and social and civic commitments. But he understood that if householders like us lived a careful life and took regular intensive retreats like this, that over the course of a lifetime, lay people could reach profound and liberating uh, depth of insight. And so he was invited to open a meditation center for lay people, not just for monks and nuns in Rangoon. Kamala and I recently traveled to Burma to travel and look around, and we took the opportunity to go to Mahasi Sayadaw's um, the monastery where he originally was doing his practice and writing in central Burma. And we located this, um, he called it an admonition, which I call encouraging counsel. And I'd like to read it to you because over the course of the evening's discourses on this retreat, we'll be commenting on much of what he encourages us to do. He says, do good deeds, avoid causing harm and purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, wealth, and humanity. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the relationship between the mind and the body, their impermanence, their unreliability, and their insubstantiality. This wisdom leads to a lasting peace. So let this meditation center be a quiet place where we strengthen faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, and develop the mind. This counsel from one of our traditional elders, is really a call to recognize and aspire to the best that is within us. To really look into our own hearts and to see what it is that lies dormant, but as a potential in our heart that can be developed in a very systematic, a very pragmatic and a immediately rewarding way. So he said, do good deeds and avoid causing harm, purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. We live in a fortunate time. We in the West have access to 
teachings from all the spiritual traditions, all the cultural traditions, all the psychological traditions, shamanistic traditions, herbalistic, and there are so many ways of understanding the world, our life, that it's a little bit confusing as to where to start and what is actually necessary in order to really, what? Make the most of our human life. But he points to the Buddhist teaching that are so simple and not really very esoteric. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, develop your mind. If we could just start there, it would offer more than enough for a lifetime of practice. When we do good deeds, we become a benefactor rather than a burden in our life and in our lives with others. And while we all would like to be a benefactor, we often don't take the opportunity to be a benefactor And sometimes we just end up being a burden. So it's something to reflect on. What is it that one needs to do? What are the good deeds to be done to be a benefactor? And in looking over the 10 wholesome actions that the Buddha identified, there's the obvious, you know, be generous, be kind, um, serve others, pay reverence and respect to those who are worthy. But there's one of the ten wholesome deeds that is a little unexpected. And it is to straighten your views, to straighten your understanding, to bring your understanding of the way things are into alignment with the truth. And why is that a good deed? Because to the extent that we each understand for ourselves the way things are, the way it is in life, the way it is with the body, with the mind, in their relationship to each other, in our relationship with each other, in the development of the mind, to the extent that we understand our suffering, the causes of suffering, and the end of suffering, we can truly be a benefactor, truly be a compassionate player in the lives of others. But until we do, we're just shooting in the dark. If we don't really understand from our own experience, from our own direct observation of life, then it's just luck if we're not suffering. And it's hard to guide others to be lucky. And so while it may not first appear to be a good deed to sit here in silence, unrelating to others, but just watching the, your, the unfolding of your own mind and body, and as you've discovered today, all of the trips and whinging and whining, and you know as well as I what you saw today. This is an important thing to do. This is a good deed to do, not only for yourself, but for the benefit of others. To avoid causing harm, meaning to act compassionately. There's the usual, of course, precepts, living according to the precepts. But again, another of the unexpected wise, compassionate actions is to develop right view, to really understand this is the way it is. This is the way the world works. This is the way life unfolds. This is what causes suffering. This is what causes liberation. This is what causes the end of suffering. And this is how to reach the end of suffering. It is this kind of knowledge which, when we work to obtain it through our own experience, 
infuses us with the aspiration to help others know and live with the same. He goes on to say it's generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, wealth, and humanity. But let's face it, our conditioning is it's your career, your credit card, your car, and your Facebook account that one can rely on for their happiness, wealth, and humanity. And so we need to take a look at what was the Buddha really pointing to? What is it that Mahasi Sayadaw is understanding when he says it's generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, wealth, and humanity? And I'll speak more about that a little later. Then, as only a monk in a far-off country in a former century could say, let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say in a few hours that you spend sleeping. It seems so impractical for our life in the 21st century in the West. When he says, let there be only a few things that you attend to, he's not really saying, you know, don't do anything. But he's really encouraging us, counseling us to pick carefully those things that we let occupy our time. Now, there isn't any of us in the room that couldn't do a survey of how we spend our time during the day and find, well, let's face it, a couple hours every day that we are just, well, wasting time. Hmm. Can you think of anything better to do? Well, we're here putting in this kind of time to develop our minds, to develop our understanding, to purify our speech, behavior, to purify our mind, to purify our understanding. And so often when we leave a retreat and we get back home, we can't find 20 minutes a day to practice awareness training. And yet every one of us, I'm almost 100% sure, has got 20 minutes, a half hour, an hour a day, frittered away online or some other, well, not very valuable, not very uplifting, not very forward thinking, and certainly not fulfilling our highest potential within us. And so Mahasi Sayadaw is just offering a reminder. He's not being a, you know, kind of a stern taskmaster. He's just inviting us to look. And so often when we come on a retreat here like this, and we start settling down the first day, second day, third day, and we're just settling down and kind of getting a little distance from the to-do list and the incessant demands for our attention. And then things start bubbling up. And we see how much of what we do and how much of what, how we spend our time is just not, well, it's not necessary. But because the momentum of our life and lifestyle is so compelling and so powerful and so supported by all of our, well, relationships and connections and obligations, we don't get to see so clearly, so sensitively, so deeply into our own heart and mind in the busyness of our everyday life, which makes a retreat like this immensely invaluable. I know you've all made the decision to be here. That was the easy part. Continuing to take advantage of the opportunity that's offered here is the challenge. To really, well, just be here. Just be here doing the work and 
really leaving behind all that you can of the momentum of your life outside of the retreat. Let there be only a few things that you attend to here. I was talking to uh, one of my friends who's not uh, teaching now, and he said, oh, when I'm not teaching, life gets so relaxed and so easy, but, you know, to have to do one thing a day takes up the whole day. He says, today I got a haircut. <coughs> Seemed like it took the whole day. <coughs> well, sometimes on retreat, you know, you know, of course you got your yogi job every day, that's 45 minutes, but geez, you know, when you have to do your yogi job and fill your water bottle, you can get pretty busy. So watch what it is that you don't have to do here and let it go. Let there be a few words that you say were protected there, here, with noble silence. And we invite you to really consider how you can use words, not just in what you say, but what you write, what you read, if you're reading anything. What it is that you can do that supports your practice. Let your words, your use of words, be a vehicle supporting your practice rather than pulling you away from your practice. And then he says, a few hours that you spend sleeping. Well, in the monastery that we all practice in in Burma, when you go, they show you the schedule, and then they tell you, you know, you can sleep all you like, all you want, between 11, a, 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. You can sleep all you want, but no more than four hours. Well, that's a little unrealistic for us. We we need more than that. But I would like to invite you to consider when you wake up, get up. And when the day's practice is done in a group, as we will come to at the end of our group practice each evening, if you're not yet tired, take advantage and extend your day. Sometimes, certainly not on the first day or two of a retreat, but as we get into the retreat and we slow down and we conserve our energy and we're not really dissipating it, often, and many of you will have had this experience, we get a tremendous amount of energy. And to use it to just observe, to just look a little more, a little longer, a little more carefully at what's going on in the mind and body, because it is in this extending the limits of what you think is possible, which is how we grow. And it's not by some magical, you know, flip from ordinary to extraordinary. It's the gradual expansion, the gradual incremental growing in capacity to endure, to bear with, to extend your day to extend your energy into practice. And this is how we grow in capacity. The mind has a tremendous potential, just unfathomable to us. This is the practice to grow in capacity, to bring that potential to light, to develop the mind, to really mm, expand the range of what we can experience as a human being. Love solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. Love solitude and seek good friends? Well, a lot of spiritual practice and instruction sounds paradoxical. But in fact, loving solitude and seeking good friends is exactly what we're doing here. Because we come here and we're in silence. And solitude is not about being alone or being isolated or being lonely or being removed from everything and everyone. It's about being able to be with your own mind. 
learning to be solitary, learning to love the solitude of your own mind. That is, you know, whatever it is, all the joys, all the sorrows, all the pleasant, all the unpleasantness, and to be at ease with that. This is a capacity that we will slowly, gradually, incrementally develop being here. The silence is a powerful support for practice. We get to see our own mind. But sometimes in the community of supportive friends, as we all are here, we can see others who appear to be distressed or whom we imagine are distressed. Someone may be crying or unhappy in some way. Let them have their solitude. Let them find their own way to accept, to grow, to understand this state of mind. Look at your own urge to be, to act, to, to act compassionately or to act to relieve someone of suffering. Learn about that within yourself. There was a time after I'd been in Burma at the monastery for a number of years when I, I finally left Burma and I was on my way uh, to Australia, but I went to Thailand and I asked a friend to locate a monastery for me that was out in the forest. While I was in Burma, I lived in a monastery that was in Rangoon. It was a big, big monastery and it was in the middle of the city. And it was just a lot of, there was a lot of people, a lot of activity around. And I wanted to have some opportunity to practice in a, a forest as I'd heard the Buddha encouraged us all to do. So my friend located a, a, forest, a forest monastery over near Cambodian border. And I went there, and it was about 100 acres, and there were just two monks there. Each day we would go on alms round at 6.30 in the morning into a little village to get our food. Neither monk nor anyone in the village spoke English. And I was given a kuti, you know, a quarter mile away from the other monks. And after our alms round and uh, communal eating, the three of us eating, by 8 o'clock I had the rest of the day to myself until 6.30 in the morning the next day. And for three months I didn't speak English, I didn't hear English, I didn't read English, I didn't see anybody that I could talk to. And there were periods of loneliness course. There were periods of kind of afraid of being alone. But the solitude and the uh, simplicity of that lifestyle was extraordinary in revealing some dimensions of the mind. Well, we have that opportunity here. There's a lot of us, but we're all alone. But we're among good friends who are supportive. So take, that, take this opportunity to really be with yourself. So he says, these are the six factors, you know, to do little, to speak little, to sleep little, love solitude, be willing to learn and seek good friends. These six factors, these are the six factors contributing to good dhamma. We should understand what good dhamma is. Good dhammas are the experiences that lead us to a sense of well-being, where we feel a sense of flourishing, being nourished, living a meaningful life, beneficially, even in the face of changing conditions. This is a sense of well-being, an enduring sense of well-being that is not dependent on changing conditions. For example, when we learn to live in harmony with one another, it's not always that people are going to be nice and kind and easy to like, but we have learned how to live in harmony with them. This is a good dhamma. 
This is a cause for a sense of well-being. When we learn why and how to practice compassion, this too is a cause for a sense of well-being. Expressing our gratitude, recognizing what we're grateful for, tremendous source of sense of well-being in our life. It's an important practice each day to reflect on the beneficial conditions of our life. And they're infinite. As bad as it is for some of us, for whatever reason, we still live at the top of the heap. We're, this is as good as it gets in the human realm. We have a lot to be grateful for and just bringing it to mind and acknowledging it is a powerful source of a sense of well-being. Wholesome states of mind that we develop here, awareness, loving-kindness, generosity, respect, these too are when developed, a source of a sense of well-being. Then there are all the spiritual goodies which we may be hoping to get a taste of. Extraordinary calmness, piercing clarity, exuberant faith, balanced mind, liberating understanding, the whole package. You know, these spiritual goodies, they happen automatically. You don't even have to want them. If you practice, they will come. The greater challenge is not getting attached to them. But if you practice, they will come. These are good dhammas. And finally, of all the good dhammas, there's the Buddhas pointing to, in the third noble truth, the unconditioned Nibbana, liberation. Sometimes when we hear the Buddha's teachings on the third noble truth or liberation or Nibbana, we think, well, that's fine for him. And people who lived, monks and nuns, during his day and age, or for those who are able to live in remote forest huts or mountain caves or you know, spend a lifetime in isolation and solitude, you know, living on berries and twigs. Uh, they are the ones who get a glimpse of the unconditioned in Nibbana. But it, that's not so. It is available to every one of you. If you practice. If you develop your mind and you practice in a wise and balanced way, in time, it can't be stopped. It is not only for foreigners or hermits or people who lived in former generations. It is a reality that can be realized here and now. The ultimate good dhamma. We'll speak more during the retreat of the mindful awareness that leads to insightful understanding and the understandings that lead to peace. And Mahasi Sayadaw concludes his admonition or his encouraging counsel with he's saying this retreat or this meditation center should be a quiet place where we strengthen our faith, faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, faith in our own capacity and ability to realize the Dharma, where we practice generosity, live in harmony, and develop the mind. So tonight I want to speak a little more about the first instruction this meditation center should be a place where we practice generosity. Because he says in the beginning, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and one's humanity. 
Actually, in the act of generosity or in any act of generosity, we do good deeds. We avoid causing harm and we can't help but develop our mind. Fulfilling all of the Buddha's teachings in a single act of generosity. Shantideva, a Buddhist scholar of the 8th century, wrote, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through seeking pleasure for oneself. Generosity is a happiness practice. It's a practice that comes from, or a happiness that comes from, letting go. However, our conditioning is quite the opposite. Our conditioning is to seek, acquire, and hold on to all that you can get, believing that that will be the vehicle for your happiness whether it's people, or knowledge, or credentials, or career, or finances, or spiritual attainment, there's this assumption in our conditioning that if you get it and hold on to it, you'll be happy. You know, if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, isn't that an assumption that sounds logical? Actually, no, the Buddha said. It's when we learn to let go, letting go of all that we can. That's the vehicle for true, genuine, stable happiness. How does that work? Generosity is a practice. Many years ago, I was living in western Massachusetts, and I saw an article in the newspaper about a potter living in nearby where I lived. And he's a potter who had studied in Japan, had his shop and his display room uh, near his shop and he had constructed a Japanese tea house where every summer he had someone come from Japan to offer the formal Japanese tea ceremony to anybody who wanted uh, to observe it. So, so I went and I spent a, just a wonderful afternoon at the grounds of this potter's studio and shop and going to the tea ceremony. And it was just beautiful, uh, the, the buildings, the construction, and the grounds, and the flower gardens, and the tea ceremony itself, and its pottery. And it was just lovely. It, just, it was a real spiritual experience for me. And I wanted to express my appreciation to the potter, but I didn't really have the funds to buy any of his pottery, which was not that expensive, but it was more than I could afford. So at the time, I used to bake my own bread. And every weekend, I'd bake six loaves of bread. So I took him one and gave him a loaf of bread as an expression of my gratitude and appreciation for what he had offered to me there. He invited me later to um, help him fire his kill, which is a wood-fired kiln and it takes 36 hours or so to, to fire, and he would fire it once each season. So the next season, winter came around, and he asked me to help him fire, and I did. I went, and for several hours through the night, I was just throwing the sticks in the wood, in the kiln, keep the fire going, trying to get the temperature up to where the glazes would... Uh, be fixed on the potter. He said that if I helped him, that in a couple of days after it cooled down, I could come back and we would unload the kill and he would let me pick 
a piece from the, the firing. So I did. I went back and we unloaded the kill and took out hundreds of pieces. And he, put all, he selected all of the tens and put them aside for his showroom. But of the remaining, he said I could pick anything I wanted. So I picked a bowl. And it was just a small bowl, but it was a bowl that you could hold in your hands that would be quite good for going through the line here. And that's what I used it for. I came to retreats for a dozen years, bringing that bowl with me every time, investing a lot of, well, attachment <laughs> into that bowl. I was really happy to receive it because it was a bowl that I couldn't afford, but I appreciated his generosity. And I really enjoyed it. Later, I went to Burma and I ordained, and I put everything into storage upstairs here. And it was forgotten for six, five or six years. When I came back and, and later disrobed, I had so much gratitude for my Dharma teachers, both the ones in Burma and the ones that I had practiced with here for many years, that I wanted to offer my teachers a gift. So I looked through all the things I owned, came up with this bowl and said, this bowl is really special to me. So I offered it to one of my teachers. And I was so happy to be able to offer it because it was something that I truly valued. And my teacher received it and they seemed to appreciate it as they put it on their mantle over their fireplace. And I could see it every time I went to their home. I could see, oh, there it is on display. And I felt happy about that. I lost track of it. Didn't go there for a number of years. And some years later, I was invited to a friend's, uh, a supporter's home in Boston. A woman who's been a great Dharma benefactor. And we were having a light dinner in the garden. And when it got dark and cool, we came inside to her place, and she lives very simply. And uh, we were going to sit in the living room and continue our conversation, and she directed me into the living room, and when I looked in the living room, there was a two-person couch, a one-person chair with a little coffee table in between, and a one-inch metal Buddha on the mantel place, and that was it. Really simple. So she said, we can sit here. So I went and I sat down on one of the seats, and she sat on the other, and I looked at the coffee table, and there was that bowl. <laughs> and I said, hey, nice bowl you got there. <laughs> she said, yes, one of, my, one of my teachers gave it to me. And I said, I know. <laughs> and I told her the story of the bowl. And it kind of filled out the whole thing. At first, I was very happy that she had the bowl. Then I had some second thoughts and said, and why'd they give that away? <laughs> and then I remembered that I was given the bowl, and out of my appreciation for it, I gave it away. And so I figured my teacher had done the same. Now, when I look back over the life of that bowl, it has been the source of a tremendous amount of happiness in the potter who made it and offered it to me, in my receiving it, using it, and offering it to my teacher, who had the happiness of receiving it and displaying it and using it and offering it to one of her benefactors, who had the happiness of receiving it and evident appreciation of it by leaving it on display in her house. Now the value of the bowl is insignificant, but the value of the happiness from giving it away so many times is inestimable. When we give things away, when we practice generosity, we don't lose anything. We only gain in happiness. Contrary to our initial conditioning. In this way we can see that generosity really is a happiness practice. It's a practice of happiness that comes from letting go, not from holding on. And in this way, it is the foundational practice for all of our Dharma journey. 
learning how to let go, how to let go of things, how to let go of our attachment, let go of our fears, let go of our ideas about ourselves. It's generosity that lays the foundation. And the Buddha said of generosity, he said, if beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. If there was ever an opportunity to share, the Buddha would never let that go by without taking the opportunity. Generosity is also a compassion practice. It's not only out of seeing and sharing our the things that we appreciate, but we can look around the world and we can see a tremendous need wherever you look for the benefit of generosity. But it requires awareness. It is an awareness practice that notices that's willing to see the way things are and to take advantage, to offer, to be compassionate, to, and to practice generosity. A couple of years ago, I noticed when I went to some of the cities that, that we go to, that there were a lot of homeless people. A lot of homeless people and street people and you know, people with their signs, you know, homeless and need money to support myself and kids and whatever. And for a long time, I was not happy. I kind of avoided them and didn't really want to, didn't really want to see them because they made me feel uncomfortable. I felt anxious. I felt, sometimes I felt afraid. Sometimes I just saw a, an overwhelming personal problem that I couldn't do anything about, or I saw a social, political problem that I could get upset and angry about, and I just, well, avoided them, sometimes crossing the street. Well, at some point, through my awareness practice, I realized I'm suffering. The fear, the anxiety, the upsetness, the potential for anger, frustration, this is suffering. And it's unpleasant to experience this, but only I can do anything about it. All the homeless people and all the street people aren't going to ever leave the streets. There's always going to be those kind of people in our community. And I can't fix it all. So what am I to do with my suffering? So I said, okay, only I can do anything about this. So I started greeting them. Not avoiding, but going up to them to greet them. And would always find some way of connecting with them. Getting their attention and connecting with them. And often by asking the question, How's it going? How's it going? You know, we ask that of our friends and acquaintances and co-workers. Why not street people? So, how's it going? Well, one of the most recent fellows that I asked, it was a rainy day, Sunday, you know, not a busy street day, but Sunday, pouring rain. I was running down the road to get uh, to breakfast, and there was a, a panhandler on the street, and he was standing there with his sign. So I stopped and said, mm, how's it going? And he says, it's a little slow today. <laughs> like, I'm not sure what that means, but at least we had the connection, and in offering him something, like with every other person that I offer some token of support to, a dollar or two, whatever, there's a connection. There's a very human, heartfelt connection that is the gift that we give. The value of the dollar or the five dollars, and, and some even say they need 20, and, and, and I'll give them that. The five dollars, the one dollar, the twenty dollars, it goes quickly. But the connection, 
And the gift of recognition, the gift of acceptance, the gift of love, the gift of just being human with another human, recognizing here is another human being, just living their life best they can, doing what they can to get by. Tremendous gift. It doesn't cost you anything. You only have to let go of your fear, your anxiety, your frustration, your judgment to be happy. But if we aren't practicing awareness, we don't see that we're suffering. We blame them. We blame the government. We blame you know, whatever, the economic system or something. You know, it's their problem. Yeah, it may be their problem, but it's our suffering. When we practice awareness, we bring our suffering into view. Because only we can do anything about it. Generosity is such an awareness practice. It's also a compassionate practice. The Buddha said, a wise person gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hand, gives it showing respect, gives a valuable gift, and gives it with the understanding that something good will come of it. A wise person gives such a gift. Such wisdom comes only through paying attention. Not because it's something we should do, but because it's something that we see and feel and recognize the immediate benefit to ourselves. Now, when I plan to go to Portland or you know, Boston or wherever it is that I'm going, I look forward to the opportunity to walk down that street and see if the familiar people are still there. Some are, some aren't. Because I know that I'll have the opportunity to both feel good and do good, and others will feel the same. Generosity or dana, the practice of generosity in the Buddhist teachings, has a, has a pretty impressive pedigree, if you will. It's one of the three foundations of establishing the Dharma in your life. Meaning, if you really want to live the life of Dharma, if you want to live a Dharma lifestyle, it rests on three pillars. Generosity, living in harmony, and developing the mind. Any two of which is not sufficient to stabilize your life in the Dharma. And so, generosity is a requirement. Generosity is also one of the ten paramis, the forces of purity in our mind, that the, Buddhist, that the Bodhisattva developed to perfection as a requirement in order to become the Buddha. We too develop the forces of purity in our mind, non-attachment, non-aversion, non-delusion, in our household practice. This is the work that we as householders do, practicing generosity, patience, loving kindness, understanding, etc., truthfulness, living in harmony, in order to prepare the mind for liberation. The depth of your liberation is dependent, totally reflective of the development of the forces of parami, forces of purity. You want deeper and more liberating insight? Practice patience, practice generosity, practice loving kindness. This is the determinant of the degree of liberation in the mind. After I'd been in Burma for about four and a half years, I was preparing to leave and to travel with my teacher, Upandita. And some, a couple of Burmese women came to see me in my uh, cottage. 
and they said, you know, uh, before you leave Burma, you really should meet our teacher. Now, everybody in Burma has their teacher. A Sayadaw, a monk, an elder monk, who is the family's um, confessor, psychologist, counselor, spiritual guide, favorite uncle, not really a babysitter, but someone who offers a lot of teaching to the kids and grandkids. That's the role that monks serve in families in Burma. So he said, oh, you've got to meet our teacher. Well, I'd met a lot of teachers. And I wasn't particularly, you know, but being polite, I said, okay. So the appointed day came, and they showed up, and I got in the truck, and off we went to meet their teacher. And on the way, they, they told me about him, that many years ago, he had been the first meditation teacher at Mahasi Sayadaw's center where I was staying. And after teaching there for 10 years, finally, after asking permission to leave, finally Mahasi Sayadaw granted him permission to, to be relieved of his teaching duties. So he left the center and he went to what was then, as I imagine it, or as I've heard, the, the outskirts of Rangoon. And he found a, a small a monastery where he could have a couple of acres, where one of the other monasteries gave him a couple of acres where he could live. So 30 years prior to the time I was going to visit him, he had established himself in this little grove of trees on the outskirts of Burma. And when we got there, there was a little grove of trees and a few buildings inside, very simple wooden buildings, and it was the most mm, simple and quiet place in the middle of a vast suburban sprawl. And what I found out was that when he went there to live, he just went to do his own practice and to live simply, live a life of integrity, practicing the Dharma. And of course, people who knew of him from their practice, meditation practice at the meditation center, came to see him. And over the course of the intervening 30 years, they had moved to that area in order to be with him. So during the course of their lives, they would work, and in the evening, they would come to listen to his Dharma talk, and they would practice in the, in the, the large meditation hall that he had to have built to accommodate them all. So for 30 years, he'd been living there doing his simple monastic lifestyle, but people were would come to practice, hear the teachings, and to support him. He, in turn, would offer them the Dharma and live a life of integrity. So I was really impressed with him, because he was well known throughout the whole country as a pretty realized monk, whatever that means, that he was very well regarded by those who had the most integrity. So I asked if I could stay with him for a while. And he granted me permission, and I went to practice with him for uh, a couple of weeks. When I got there, he said, okay, come with me, through a translator. He didn't speak English, I didn't speak Burmese. But through a translator, he said, come with me. So he took me out the back of his cottage to a long, narrow building maybe 60, 60, 80 feet long, about five feet wide, six feet wide, with a bed at one end and a toilet at the other. And he said, you can practice here. And this is where he used to practice, doing walking and sitting, walking and sitting all day. So I would just walk and sit. And I asked him, I said, well, when, when do we go on alms round? You know, monks have to go on their alms round to get their daily support. And he said, you don't, you don't, you don't need to go. I and the other monks, half a dozen monks in the monastery, We'll go, and when we come back, we'll share our food with you. I said, okay, no problem. So I would sit and walk and, and practice. And you know how it is after, you know, you're practicing intensively in seclusion for a few days. You kind of want to get a little breath of fresh air. So after I'd been in there for a couple of days, I, I said, well, I think I'd like to go out and walk around the monastery, get some fresh air. So I went to the door and opened the door to, to step out, and there he was standing right there. 
just looking kindly at me like, oh, hello. Yes. So I said, yes, hello, and went back in and continued practicing for a few more days. And after a few more days, again, it got a little, <clears throat> well, intense. I felt I needed a little space. So I said, well, I think I'll go out and walk around the monastery. And again, I went to the door, opened the door to step out, and there he was. So I knew I wasn't going to get away with that. <laughs> but when you meet and you uh, practice with someone who has that kind of mind, it really calls forth the best within you. It is a gift. Just the way he lived his life is a gift of the Dharma in action. It's not just words, not just books, not just, you know, kind of yabbering on. It's how he lives his life. A dramatic gift to both me, as I was practicing there, and all those hundreds, maybe thousands of people that had moved to that area of Rangoon in order to be with him to be able to offer him support every day and to receive in return the gift of the Dhamma from him. The gift of the Dhamma excels all other forms of giving, the Buddha said. And why is that? Because when we're offered the Dhamma, when we're offered these teachings, this guidance, this understanding, we're offered something that brings happiness to us now and brings liberation to us to the extent that we practice. It's a gift that goes with us from life to life, if you believe in that. If you don't, it still does, but nevertheless. <laughs> it's a gift. How do you remove a gift of knowledge? How do you remove a gift of understanding from your heart once you've taken it in? You can't. It is there for your use and enjoyment and happiness thereafter. Hearing the truth, hearing the Dhamma, practicing the Dhamma, being guided in the Dhamma, realizing the Dhamma, the greatest gift that we can give to one another. That's why Mahasi Sayadaw can say in his admonition, his encouraging counsel, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. So let's take a moment, sit quietly and let the words settle down. These are the four resolves, the Buddha said. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve the truth. One should cultivate generosity, and one should train in peace. These are the four resolves. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. <laughs> 